Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine this morning. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the unreformed structure of the UN Security Council runs the risk of losing legitimacy, credibility and acceptance if the General Assembly fails to urgently implement the necessary reforms. A group of South African Broadcasting Corporation employees slammed the public broadcasters' planned retrenchments, saying this will compromise the organization's public broadcasting mandate. In economics news, Zambia implores the private sector to consider investing in industries that are able to produce raw inputs used in the manufacturing industry. And in sports news, Athletics Kenya nominated for 2020 World Athletics Member Federation Award. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa will partake in the online 12th BRICS Summit under the theme Partnership for Global Stability, Shared Security and Innovative Growth. Leaders from the member states Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa will focus on strengthening the bloc's relations in order to have more impact and influence on the global stage. Norma Bolani reports. The presidency says that South Africa has made concerted efforts to place Africa and the rest of the global south on BRICS's agenda to harmonize inter-regional and international policies adopted. The summit is expected to take stock of new projects such as BRICS Energy Research Corporation platform, the adoption of a roadmap for BRICS Energy Corporation, as well as the launch of the BRICS Women's Business Alliance. President Sol Ramaphosa will be supported by the Ministers of International Relations, Health, Finance, Trade and Industry, as well as State Security. South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority says the ECG pastor Shepard Bushiri and his wife Mary can run but they cannot hide and justice will be served in their fraud case. An arrest warrant has been issued for the fugitive couple after they fled South Africa for Malawi, defying their bail conditions. Their bail has now been revoked and South Africa has initiated the extradition process with Malawi. They had been granted bail in the fraud and money laundering case and at the time they were already out on bail in relation to another case. NPA spokesperson Sipongwema says they have confidence in the work of the government and the hawks to bring the Bushiris back to South Africa to face justice. The NPA put up a fight in court for the court not to grant him bail. It did also indicate the fact that he may have had ability to skip the country given the fact that just of all there were possibilities that he was in the country legally he had a number of false documents. But we must also emphasize that we have confidence in the work that is being done by the Hawks now, and uh, I think it's a matter of time. He can run, but surely he can't hide. 
Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has added his voice to the international calls for a peaceful resolution to the fighting in the north of Ethiopia. He released a statement after meeting Ethiopia's Foreign Minister Demeke Mikonen in the Kenyan capital Nairobi. The Kenyan president's call comes after a similar comment from Uganda's President Uweri Museveni after he met Demeka earlier on Monday. Kenyatta cautioned against a full-blown conflict in the country, saying Kenya and Ethiopia have for long served as anchor states for regional peace and stability. He also urged the Tigray People's Liberation Front to de-escalate the conflict, saying the crisis risks eroding gains made by Ethiopians in developing their country. Russian President Vladimir Putin has given the go-ahead to an agreement with Sudan on setting up a Russian naval facility on Sudan's Red Sea coast. Russia plans to create a logistics and repair hub for its navy, that will be limited to 300 personnel. According to a draft agreement, the base will stand on the northern outskirts of Port Sudan. And finally, U.S. President-elect Joe Biden has warned that Donald Trump's refusal to begin the transition of power following his election defeat earlier this month could cost lives. Addressing the media, Biden says Americans will keep succumbing to COVID-19 unless Trump worked with the incoming administration to coordinate vaccination programs. In the past week, two U.S. companies have announced that their COVID-19 candidates have shown over 90% efficiency in combating and preventing the infection. The BBC's Lebu Diseko has more This briefing was essentially to talk about his plans for the US economy and improving the economy. But underlying everything was the coronavirus crisis. And really, he said that unless you turn that around, there's no turning around the economy. And then in the questions afterwards, so many of them were about the fact that Donald Trump's administration is just refusing to cooperate, coordinate or give him any information that might help with something like the rollout of the vaccination process. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you. And it is 7.06 Central African time. And you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. The unreformed structure of the Security Council runs the risk of losing legitimacy, credibility and acceptance if the General Assembly fails to urgently implement the necessary and required reforms. That was the message delivered by Pretoria's envoy during a debate in the Assembly on the equitable representation and increase of membership to the 15-member council on which South Africa currently serves as a non-permanent member. An intergovernmental process that started in 2008 has yielded little to no progress on one of the most contentious issues among the 193 UN member states. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The 8,669th meeting of the Security Council is called to order. The Council has largely remained unchanged since the UN's inception 75 years ago and only reformed once, in 1965, when the non-permanent seats on the Council were expanded from 6 to 10. Intergovernmental negotiations that started 12 years ago have made little headway, as hopes abound 
that the 75th anniversary of the organization can provide added impetus, as South Africa's ambassador Jerry Machila explained. Let us be clear. The Security Council of today is not reflective of the current realities of the world we live in. The broader UN membership has, over, the, over half a century, rightfully reached a point where it demands to be represented in all organs of the United Nations in a fully representative and equitable manner, which includes developing countries having a voice in both membership categories of Security Council. With the reality that most peace and security issues on the Council agenda relate to our continent, Africa, cannot remain unrepresented and excluded from being represented in the permanent membership category of this organ of the UN. He called for the IGN process to be reinvigorated, urging the heeding of Africa's call for at least two permanent seats with all the prerogatives associated therein, as well as five non-permanent seats as embodied in the common African position in the Ezulwini consensus. We join other member states that have called for us to explore options for moving the negotiation process at the IGN, including the start of text-based negotiation and establishment of a roadmap with clear implementable timeframes for the immediate normalization of the IGN process. Sabra believes that time has come for the IGN process to adapt the rules of procedure of the General Assembly, which will normalize the process but are bringing into conformity with all other negotiation processes undertaken by this very important body sometime in this very hall. Machila indicated that a reformed council should have 26 seats up from the current 15. The current stalemate in the council and daring failure for the council to carry out its historical mandate of material peace and security is largely attributed to its current configuration, which is outdated. To put it simply, it is no longer reflective of the UN we need. Adding a further complication is that any consensus reached by member states would then need to be signed off by the five permanent members of the Council, the US, Britain, France, Russia and China, who have veto powers over any changes to the Council's configuration. Listen to this recent exchange with the former President of the General Assembly, Tijani Mohamed Bande. It is the crux of the matter. It's not an issue that we sit as 193. The 190 or 180 say this is the way to go and then it works. No. This is the issue. So the five permanent five members essentially, essentially hold sway as to where this process goes? You know, they, they are important. The first is before it gets to them, we have to agree to something. But whatever gets to them, unless they, they all sign onto it, nothing happens. A slow-moving train where the destination remains unclear at best. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. A group of South African Broadcasting Corporation employees has slammed the public broadcaster's planned retrenchments, saying this will compromise the organization's public broadcasting mandate. The group, led by several editors in its news department, staged a picket at the SABC's headquarters in Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 
yesterday afternoon to protest against the restructuring plans, which include cutting 400 permanent jobs. They were joined by EFF members, as well as Trade Union Federation Saftu Zwilinzima Vavi. The SABC says the restructuring is aimed at making sure the organization is financially sustainable. Wisani Makubele reports. A group of SABC employees, all dressed in black, laid on the ground in protest against job cuts. They say the planned changes will negatively affect the SABC's public mandate as they seek to pursue commercial interests. We are not happy about the retrenchment. The process of engagement wasn't transparent but also justifiable. And it is for that reason we came out as ordinary workers taking our own one-hour lunchtime just to say, guys, let's go back to the discussion table and let's talk, let's resolve this. We are here today to say public broadcasting is in our DNA. We are here today to say you are violating Section 192 of the Constitution, which guarantees public broadcasting for South Africa. We cannot have a structure that is more appropriate to a private commercial entity. We are, and we have the honor of being the public broadcaster of South Africa. We are not in its leadership, but we are its editors. And we will defend its mandate to speak to all South Africans, not just consumers and those who can pay for it. The SABC employees were supported by members of the EFF dressed in red who also sang and danced in protest against management's restructuring plans. Tlingiwem Kalipi is from the EFF's labor desk. Do remember before COVID-19, the country was sitting at 31% of unemployment. Now plus or minus 3 million after COVID is going to be retrenched. So therefore we ought to come and support you when there is a retrenchment that is not based on consultation. The Communication Workers' Union says it will soon embark on a full-blown strike against the planned job cuts. Its General Secretary, Obri Chavalala, says labor unions are currently engaged in two processes at the SABC. One is that we have to interdict. That's what Comrade Tema will do. CW will announce once we get certificate to embark on a full-fledged strike we are going to announce sometime this week and we are going to make a call to all workers of SAPC, affected or not affected. Let us make sure that there is a blackout at SAPC, but this is the beginning of protests, marches, not only here, but across the nation. The National Union of Metal Workers has also spoken out against the public broadcasters' plans. General Secretary of Trade Union Federation, SAFTU, Zuelin Zimavavi, also pledged his support to the workers. This is going to be a long-run war. It's not a one-day event where we shoot one bullet and think that we have won the struggle. This is going to be difficult. It is going to be teary but it requires our dedication and we must draw from our reserves of solidarity to make sure that every day we are here to make noise and to make life very difficult for the guys who are sitting on the 27th floor there. 
SABC COO Ian Plagis maintains that they've done everything by the book and they are proceeding with the Section 189 process. We believe that we've concluded uh, this process uh, fairly and in good faith. And as you know, from the Labor Relations Act, we only needed to do four sessions in two months, basically. We did 16 sessions in four months. So we more, more than adequately extended the time so that we could have meaningful engagement. The lunch hour pickets are expected to continue indefinitely. Amuisani Makubele in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int. It's 7.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Government has indicated that this year's South African Investment Conference will focus more on consolidating the 664 billion rand of investment pledges made in the past two years and less on new commitments. The two-day conference will be held at the Santon Convention Centre between the 17th and 18th of November at a reduced capacity in accordance with COVID-19 regulations. President Sil Ramaphosa initiated the conference in an effort to mobilize 1.2 trillion rand in investment over a period of five years, starting from 2018. Naledin Lob reports. Economic advisor to President Cyril Ramaphosa, Trudy Makaya, says discussions around energy security, structural reform for economic recovery, mining and support for small businesses will take center stage at this year's investment conference. Makaya says physical attendance of the conference is expected to be 90% lower due to COVID-19 restrictions. There will also be a panel on land reform and unlocking agricultural value chains. Uh, we've seen some steps in the land reform uh, process, you know, different elements of it in terms of releasing land, in terms of the sector itself thinking about a, a potential development agency that's run uh, by the sector. So there are various partnerships 
and opportunities um, that are unlocked in that value chain. There'll be a panel on small business growth opportunities, particularly looking uh, as to how small businesses have fared under COVID. Makaya says although the conference seeks to comply with COVID-19 protocols, government will ensure full representation from the private sector, the investment community, labor and civil society at this year's proceedings. Um, Like in previous years, we will also have several ministers who will be present, uh, particularly the day before um, at the sectoral roundtables to ensure that um, there's robust discussion on uh, policy implementation. Floor space utilization um, at the Centen Convention Center will be well below 50% uh, in all the venues um, that we have booked. And screening, sanitizing and masking requirements uh, will apply. 664 billion rand in investment commitments was pledged in the two previous conferences held in 2018 and 2019 respectively. Trade, Industry and Competition Minister Ibrahim Patel says this year's conference seeks to consolidate previous pledges under the new COVID-19 reality. We're not focused as much on fresh investment pledges uh, because much of the conference will be to get that 664 billion rand implemented, but there are companies that are now ready to make some fresh um, uh, pledges and uh, there will be an opportunity for them uh, to indicate that. So far, over a thousand local and international delegates have registered for virtual attendance of the conference. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. The extradition process for the self-proclaimed prophet Shepherd Bushiri and his wife Mary is underway. A warrant for their arrest has been issued and their bail revoked. The fugitive couple, who are leaders of the Enlightened Christian Church, fled South Africa last week in contravention of their bail conditions. Bushiri confirmed in a video circulating on social media that they are in Malawi. Bushiri and his wife, together with three other co-accused, are charged with money laundering, theft and fraud involving over 100 million rand. Lila Magnus reports. Government spokesperson Pumla Williams says they have already started the paperwork to request the extradition of the Bushiri couple. Both South Africa and Malawi are signatories to the SADC protocol on extradition. Government would like to confirm that we have initiated the process to get Mr. Bushir and the wife extradited back, back into South Africa. We are starting with the paperwork through the courts. Retired Deputy Director of the Public Prosecutions at the NPA's Johannesburg office, Advocate Johan de Tue, says a warrant of arrest is the basis of the extradition process. Once the warrant has been issued, government can ask Interpol to intervene and provisionally arrest the couple in Malawi. You can also do a formal application through the official channels and, and do a formal application where you have to to set out your case against uh, the other queue so that the other country can see that there is at least a prima facie case against the two fugitives. And then once they receive that application, uh, normally the arrest will follow. And then, uh, you know, the facts will be placed before that magistrate uh, in Malawi, which will consider it. It was normally a, a two-phase approach. You know, many countries work like this. Also, us in South Africa, there's first a legal decision, whether there's a prima facie case against it. And once that is made, then it becomes a political decision. Then normally the Minister of Justice must rule whether or not they're going to extradite these two people to South Africa. 
Williams says our South Africa and Malawi have a good working relationship. They have no reason to believe the Malawian government will not cooperate. We will be compiling all the necessary documentation to submit to the Malawian government. Um, We will keep South Africans updated as we proceed with this process. But the Bushiris have already indicated they will not be extradited willingly and it seems they have legal recourse to fight their extradition. Professor Tseli Puko, Associate Professor at the Law Faculty at the University of Johannesburg, says although South Africa and Malawi are signatories of the SADC Protocol on Extradition, the Bashiris might have a legal leg to stand on, not to be extradited. Even though South Africa has ratified the SADC Protocol on Extradition, from the research that I have conducted, it does not appear that such protocol has been domesticated in the South African laws. In other words, it does not form part and parcel of our legal system. Then that's where the legal process might have uh, problems. If Bushiri challenges such extradition on the grounds that South Africa has not incorporated a legislation to give effect to the SADC protocol on extradition, we might have a serious problem there. Immigration attorney Gary Eisenberg has also cast doubt over whether the leader of the enlightened Christian church will be extradited to South Africa. If one listens to Bushiri's broadcast on Wednesday evening, what he actually did, and being very well informed about it, he invoked Article 4F, of the protocol, which states very clearly that Malawi would be obliged not to extradite him if Bushiri does not receive minimum guarantees of a fair trial. Now, what he did was, without actually mentioning the SADC protocol or its articles, he's in his rights. He went back to Malawi. The South African government has a lot to answer for. Bashiri has claimed that he is being persecuted and not prosecuted, stating that he had laid charges with the Independent Police Investigative Directorate against the investigating team in 2018. He claims the officers tried to extort money from him. In 2017-18, I had a lot of problems with uh, some people who were coming to me in the name of... uh, Uh, law enforcement, uh, or let me say police officers, who were looking for for money, to extort money from me. These people gave me tough time to extort money from me, and I opened cases against them uh, with the IP. IPED spokesperson Ndileka Kola confirmed the cases were opened. IPED has been in hold, tried to get hold of Bushiri, but due to his um, busy schedule, he was not availing himself due to poor cooperation from his side, due to his non-availability to provide crucial information to IPED that would sort of enable the directorate to continue with its investigative um, responsibility. As a result, the investigation into this particular matter has been sort of stalled. At some point, our investigators were quite keen to go with him so that they can um, identify the suspects, but he really has not been coming forth. The circumstances surrounding Bashiri's escape from South Africa has not been explained. 
Williams says they do, however, know he didn't use one of his passports or leave the country legally. I think where we are now is that whatever method that she has used to exit our shores, she has done it illegally. At the moment, we, our focus is to get Bushiri and the wife back into South Africa, and we believe they are the people who can share life. Because even if they have used some of the government officials, we will only know that when we apprehend. Because from where we are, we have looked at all the legal protocols mm. that exist for ports of entry. There is no such a record that Bushiri and the wife use the legal processes. There are unconfirmed suspicions that the couple was smuggled out of the country by car, crossing several borders without raising any red flags. I am Lila Magnus in Pretoria. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez-Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements, the voice of the African Renaissance, from an African perspective. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. What uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it, don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think they should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Um, and Musa, good morning. In the headlines, Nigeria's former president, Olusagun Obasanjo, is in Ethiopia as various African and European nations push, uh, push for a mediated solution 
to a nearly two-week conflict in the Tigray region. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa will partake in the online 12th BRICS Summit under the theme Partnership for Global Stability, Shared Security and Innovative Growth. And South Africa's Opposition Democratic Alliance has welcomed the decision by the Portfolio Committee on Home Affairs to call for Minister Arun Mutsuledi to appear before it to account for the escape of ECG pastor Shepard Bushiri and his wife Mary to Malawi. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. The Stop TB Partnership has released what is called the the Step Up for TB 2020, a new report prepared together with the International Medical Humanitarian Organization Doctors Without Borders, or MSF. The report, which examined the national policies of 37 countries with a high burden of TB, found that significant policy gaps risk undermining progress in the fight against TB, one of the world's leading infectious killers. To discuss this further, we spoke to Dr. Luchika Dichu, Executive Director of the Stop TB Partnership. We uh, do this uh, regularly, so this is the fourth of its kind. And uh, we this time covered the record number of countries, 37, representing roughly 75% of all TB burden. And uh, why, uh, why we are doing this is because we are of a strong belief as Stop TB Partnership that irrespective where we live, uh, what color of the skin we have, what religion we have, what gender we have, what uh, vulnerabilities we have, uh, everybody should have access to the latest uh, recommendations and the latest tools to be diagnosed and uh, treated by uh, uh, TB. So this is why, uh, working with uh, countries, uh, we basically looked at what is available as uh, policies at country level, and what is recommended internationally, uh, especially by WHO, uh, uh, for TB response to try and see how much alignment it is, but also to measure the progress. So we think this is extremely important because in TB, uh, we don't have too many tools uh, because we don't benefit enough of research. Uh, We don't have a, a vaccine. We don't have the right diagnosis. Uh, a point of care, and uh, what, but what we have, uh, which is uh, advanced uh, enough, should be available for everybody. So uh, we saw progress versus the previous reports, um, especially in access to some of the um, uh, tools in diagnosis, such as rapid molecular diagnosis, sure. but we saw also shortcomings as well. Now, you are saying there are not many tools to manage the disease. Now, Africa still bears the brunt of the TB epidemic, accounting for over 24% of all TB cases. What are some of the shortcomings in the alignment of national TB policies that you, you found most worrying? There are two or three that are the most uh, relevant. On diagnosis is the fact that we uh, there is a, a global recommendation that everybody should have access to um, a drug sensitivity test, basically to ensure when you get diagnosis to know exactly what are the drugs that will work for the form of tuberculosis uh, you have. 
And uh, we observe that a large uh, percentage of countries are still not having uh, uh, this recommendation uh, as the first one, that to have as well uh, a drug sensitivity test done. This is the first. The second, we still, in spite of saying that the treatment for tuberculosis, drug-resistant tuberculosis especially, should have no injectables, uh, and uh, should be all oral, we still have uh, 39% of the countries that we surveyed still uh, prescribing um, uh, injectables. And injectable is really not only painful and unpleasant, but also gives a lot of side effects. So that is uh, uh, another one that is very worrying. The third worrying one is on the TB prevention. Uh, we don't have enough... Um, uh, taken uh, at country level, uh, the fact that um, not only people living with HIV, but also contacts of people with TB, uh, non-people uh, living with HIV, other type of contacts should also take preventive treatment. And the fourth one is also related to the procurement of uh, medicines. Uh, they, uh, the drugs that people take uh, at country level should be quality assured. They should be uh, certified of good quality. And uh, there is a, a, a good percentage of countries that are also not uh, really taking up um, uh, this quality assurance. So the quality of the drugs uh, in some instances is questionable. Sure. These are some of the main findings that are uh, of concern. But as I said, looking backwards, there is a lot of advance and we are grateful to see that. Now, in Africa, where quality of TB care was, I suppose, suboptimal even before COVID-19, the pandemic has only worsened patient care and TB control, isn't it? Um, to what extent has the situation been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic on people affected by TB? So uh, what COVID did was actually not... Uh, 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 you know, it didn't impact the, the regulations or the recommendations, you know, because uh, we also looked at the 2019 policies, so we didn't measure the 2020 policies. But, and, uh, you know, so, but COVID, what impacted was the implementation and what impacted was access of people to the diagnosis and the treatment in the clinics. Either because, as you know, the lockdown impacted did the movement of people around, uh, you know, uh, going to forward and uh, accessing the service, you know, being able to travel or to really go to these clinics, but also because uh, in a lot of places, some clinics were uh, changed from being related to TB to being uh, covering COVID, and uh, also some of the TB staff was moved to do uh, mainly COVID. I have to say, though, that um, because you are based in South Africa, uh, South Africa and few other countries actually are doing better than even in European or in uh, some of the Asian countries. We're able to either maintain the services or to put in place things to ensure that people and the programs still continue. And I will mention here for sure Zimbabwe and Zambia is doing uh, and Nigeria is, is doing huge efforts to ensure that. That was Dr. Luchika Dichu, Executive Director of the Stop TB Partnership, speaking to Kumbele Munjelele. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land.
Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. In each and every one of us, there is a purpose and grace. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you. You can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live, live your life, life by, by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of Monday, Monday motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by, by design, design, be the architect of your life. Only on Channel Africa, the African, the African perspective. perspective. It's 7.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. For years, company employees have been touted as the biggest risk to cybersecurity, more so now that perimeter security lines are blurred and more people are working from anywhere using their own devices. Does allowing staff to work remotely increase the risk of cyber attacks? For more on this, here is Charles Ukeman, Group CEO at AVS Cyber International. Think of the people that work in a factory or people that work in a mine. Um, it is quite important that they go through health and safety induction and things like that. And the reason for it is there's a risk for the business and there's a risk that people can get injured and so on. Now, exactly the same principle is true for people working on IT networks. There's a huge business risk for the organization. If people work on that network and they do silly things, they could compromise the company that they work for without even knowing it. And I think uh, to create that awareness that they are responsible as individuals to make sure that the company is not compromised uh, is, is needs to be done through a cyber awareness uh, process. It, it, can't, it can't happen by itself. And that's the big reason why now it's even more important than before. Now, I suppose uh, it is important to build a resilient business where cybersecurity is a priority, isn't it? And why is cybersecurity still seen as an IT issue rather than a business issue? It's a brilliant question. Um, I think because it's related to, to IT, people think, well, IT is responsible for it. But, uh, but it's not. Um, it, is, it is really, it's a, it's a risk management. So anyone responsible for risk in the organization. And it's an HR issue because it's people. It's not to do with physical technology and hardware and pieces of software and all sorts of configurations. It is actually the people that are working with these systems that needs to be educated. Um, almost like on the same principle as if they work on Excel or on Word or on Outlook and so on, um, that training and awareness or that training how to use a software, um, is, is, it's an HR thing because it has to do with productivity. It has to do with efficiency. And, and hence why it's very much an HR and a risk management thing. IT in this case. 
um, is is only the custodians of the of the platforms, but they are definitely not the owners um, of of the people that has to uh, that has to be educated uh, to know how to use the software and how to be responsible users of IT. And just briefly, because we are completely out of time, um, uh, Charles, I suppose unless um, you know one has the active involve, involvement of staff, uh, your efforts may not offer the return on investment, on your security investment that you expect. Uh, so you want a system where cybersecurity practices are integrated seamlessly into everyday jobs. How should companies approach training to succeed in creating a cybersecurity culture? Uh, just briefly, one, one minute. One minute. Um, they, it's, there's no instant solution. So you can't just do a presentation, take everyone in the boardroom, show them how, what cybersecurity is about, and then think that you've done your job. Um, adults take longer to learn, which means you have to change behavior. Uh, behavior change is not something that happens overnight. It takes time. So it will take up to a year to, to, to take your, your organization through a cultural change of cyber awareness. So that's the only way to do it. It's a, a take a year program and give it to the staff in bits and pieces and start let them start thinking differently about cyber so that there's a behavior change. That is the only way to be efficient in, in that whole process. That's uh, Charles Ukerman, a group, exe- group CEO at AVS Cyber International, speaking to Kumbela Munjelele. It is 7.44 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective on the coronavirus. Coronavirus is a disease that causes respiratory illness like the flu with symptoms such as a cough, fever, and in more severe cases, difficulty breathing. You can protect yourself by washing your hands frequently, avoiding touching your face, and avoiding close contact one meter or three feet with people who are unwell. If you suspect to have contracted COVID-19, contact the relevant health authorities in your area. Keep listening to Channel Africa. The African perspective will keep you updated on the latest on the coronavirus. At 7.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. Strengthening multilateralism and developing cooperation in trade and finance are on top of the agenda for the 12th BRICS Summit this afternoon. The summit will be held virtually with heads of states of member countries Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa after it was postponed in July to COVID-19. The summit, which is being chaired by Russia, will also enable member states to compare notes on the upcoming G20 meeting later this week. The Russian embassy's Alexandra Arefiev says that the meeting will take stock of the year's successes. First of all is the adoption of the BRICS counterterrorism strategy, adoption of updated strategy for BRICS economic partnership, intensification of the new development bank activities, extension of the memorandum on cooperation in the area of comp- competition policy and creation of the BRICS International Center for Competition Policy. 
Adoption of the uh, Interlateral Memorandum of Cooperation in the Area of Physical Culture and Sports. And last but not the least is the launch of the BRICS Women's Business Alliance. Lunch hour pickets are expected to continue at the South African Broadcasting Corporation against its restructuring plans, which you'll see about 400 permanent workers lose their jobs. On Monday, a group of SABC employees, led by several editors from the news division, staged a lunch hour picket at the public broadcaster's headquarters in Auckland Park, Johannesburg, pleading with management to reconsider its position. Despite threats of legal action and protests that the SABC is forging ahead with its restructuring, saying the process is aimed at making the organization financially sustainable. Members of the EFF also joined the SABC workers in Monday's pickets as the editors slammed management, saying the planned changes will compromise the organization's public broadcasting mandate. We are not happy about the retrenchment. The process of engagement wasn't transparent but also justifiable. Let's go back to the discussion table and let's talk, let's resolve this. We are here to say you are violating section 192 of the constitution which guarantees public broadcasting for South Africa. We cannot have a structure that is more appropriate to a private commercial entity. South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister Ibrahim Patel and the Agriculture Minister Togo Didiza have signed the Sugar Industry Master Plan that aims to save the floundering industry with a deal that at least 80% of sugar consumed in SA produced by local farms and millers during the first year of implementation. In terms of the deal, local production and milling of sugar should account for 95% of local consumption by 2023. The ministry say in a statement that the sugar industry has agreed to price restraint and managed restructuring during this period. They say the sugar master plan seeks to protect thousands of jobs and diversify revenue streams for sugar producers. The plan was the product of wide consultation with the industry. According to a Brookings institution, Africa Growth Initiative, while industrialization has transformed the developed world by generating rapid structural change to drive employment and alleviate poverty and unemployment, the same narrative cannot be said of African nations. Despite the potential and promising trajectories, most African countries have remained relatively death of factories. Now, the limited industrial development represents a missed opportunity for economic transformation and quality employment generation that alleviates poverty. Zimbabwe's African lithium developer Prospect Resources has secured long-lead equipment items, giving it a leeway to commence the pilot plant project at its Acadia lithium mine to produce high-purity petalite and spodumene samples. The Australia Stock Exchange listed firm says that the plant would initially produce bulk samples of 500 tons of petalite and 120 tons of spudamine concentrates for customer qualification. It will also de-risk the flotation or flotation rather process by operating the optimized flow sheet. The US dollar is trading at 379.4 Nigerian Naira. 
111 Botswana Pula 10838 Kenyan shilling and 2085 for Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar trades at 5 rule 45. Russia 76 ruble 69. India 74 rupees 35. In China, dollar is changing hands at 61.58. And in South Africa, it will cost you 15 rand 39. The US dollar is also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to euro. Gold $1,890, platinum $921 per ounce, brand crude $44.10 a barrel. Africa rise and shine. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. And in this hour, we begin with athletics. Athletics Kenya has been nominated for 2020 World Athletics Member Federation Award. AK will now battle it out with five other federations for the accolade, who's the winner will be announced at the World Athletics Awards 2020 Gala to be held virtually on the 5th of December this year. The awards will be streamed live on the World Athletics YouTube channel, its Facebook page, and via Twitter. Besides AK, who were nominated by the Confederation of African Athletics, CAA, others are Athletics New Zealand, Oceania Athletics Association, Nicaraguan Athletics Federation, North American, Central American, and Caribbean Athletics Association, Palestine Athletics Federation, Asian Athletics Association, Peruvian Athletics Federation, Confederation of South American Athletics, and Polish Athletics Association, European Athletics. Cricket South Africa, CSA, stepped back from the brink of disaster when the hapless members' council finally voted in favor of appointing an interim nine-person board. After a fraught 72 hours packed with at least five tense meetings, the members' council of Cricket South Africa, its highest decision-making authority, was left stumped and finally saw sense. In a humiliating but necessary about 10, the members' council on Monday voted to ratify the appointment of the nine-person interim board established by the Sports Minister Natim Tetua on the 30th of October. Tembazwani and Pesitau both scored a brace to secure a 4-2 victory for Wafara Bafana against Sao Tome e Principe in the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier at the South Africa's Eastern Cape Province. Bafana achieved their mission of two back-to-back victories against Sao Tome following the 2-0 win last Friday in Durban. Far Post Sports Editor Diane Wagamabasa says Bafana had to dig deep to win from a two-all scoreline. The boys did well to uh, to win 4-2, but uh, you also have to uh, realize that uh, we were playing against Sao Tome. And, um, you know, uh, they, were, they were the first uh, in the league. And at one point it was 2-2 and uh, seemingly heading for a draw. So in some way we had to dig deep to, to get a result. And for me... Uh, the main concern is that it comes against uh, uh, what we call the minus, you know. And uh, like I said, I'm not taking anything away from Coach Mulefinseke and his team, but uh, clearly we can do one. You know, we struggled against them in Durban, uh, though we won 2-0, and then now we struggled, you know, though we won 4-2. 
Rwanda football's governing body Ferwafa says the men's under-20 national football team will not compete at the upcoming Sikafa under-20 tournament in Tanzania. The 2020 edition of the regional competition is scheduled for the 22nd of November through the 16th, the 6th rather, of December, and will also serve as qualifiers for the Africa Under-20 Cup of Nations. In a statement, Ferrafa said that the decision to snap the tournament was taken after consultative discussions between the sports ministry and the Ministry of Education. Meanwhile, Rwanda will host the Sikafa Under-17 Championship from the 13th to the 28th of December. And lastly, Tennis News' Novak Djokovic produced a masterclass to launch his campaign for the record-equaling sixth title at the ATP Finals as Daniil Medvedev outfought former champion Alexander Zverev. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That's a wrap of Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maome, technical producers for Samashoko and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info channelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327, or tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Assurance by Davido. Goodbye and keep safe.